Chapter 12 of France and England in North America, Part 3, La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean Blake. La Salle, Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, 1679-1680 La Salle on the Illinois On the 3rd of December the party re-embarked, 33 in all, in eight canoes, and ascended the chill current of the St. Joseph, bordered with dreary meadows and bare gray forests. When they approached the site of the present village of South Bend, they looked anxiously along the shore on their right to find the portage or path leading to the headquarters of the Illinois. The Mohican was absent, hunting, and, unaided by his practiced eye, they passed the path without seeing it. La Salle landed to search the woods. Hours passed, and he did not return. Hennepin and Tante grew uneasy, disembarked, bivouacked, ordered guns to be fired, and sent out men to scour the country. Night came, but not their lost leader. Muffled in their blankets, and powdered by the thick-falling snowflakes, they sat ruefully speculating as to what had befallen him. Nor was it till four o'clock of the next afternoon that they saw him approaching along the margin of the river. His face and hands were besmirched with charcoal, and he was further decorated with two possums which hung from his belt, and which he had killed with a stick, as they were swinging, head downwards, from the bough of a tree, after the fashion of that singular beast. He had missed his way in the forest, and had been forced to make a wide circuit around the edge of a swamp, while the snow, of which the air was full, added to his perplexities. Thus he pushed on through the rest of the day, and the greater part of the night, till, about two o'clock in the morning, he reached the river again, and fired his gun as a signal to his party. Hearing no answering shot, he pursued his way along the bank, when he presently saw the gleam of a fire among the dense thickets close at hand. Not doubting that he had found the bivouac of his party, he hastened to the spot. To his surprise, no human being was to be seen. Under a tree beside the fire was a heap of dry grass impressed with the form of a man who must have fled but a moment before, for his couch was still warm. It was no doubt an Indian, ambushed under the bank, watching to kill some passing enemy. Lasalle called out in several Indian languages, but there was dead silence all around. He then, with admirable coolness, took possession of the quarters he had found, shouting to their invisible proprietor that he was about to sleep in his bed, piled a barricade of bushes around the spot, rekindled the dying fire, warmed his benumbed hands, stretched himself on the dried grass, and slept undisturbed till morning. The Mohican had rejoined the party before La Salle's return, and with his aid the portage was soon found. Here the party encamped. La Salle, who was excessively fatigued, occupied, together with Hennepin, a wigwam covered in the Indian manner with mats of reeds. The cold forced them to kindle a fire, which, before daybreak, set the mats in a blaze, 
and the two sleepers narrowly escaped being burned along with their hut. In the morning, the party shouldered their canoes and baggage and began their march for the sources of the river Illinois, some five miles distant. Around them stretched a desolate plain, half covered with snow and strewn with the skulls and bones of buffalo, while on its farthest verge they could see the lodges of the Miami Indians, who had made this place their abode. As they filed on their way, a man named Duplessis, bearing a grudge against La Salle, who walked just before him, raised his gun to shoot him through the back, but was prevented by one of his comrades. They soon reached a spot where the oozy, saturated soil quaked beneath their tread. All around were clumps of alder bushes, tufts of rank grass, and pools of glistening water. In the midst a dark and lazy current, which a tall man might bestride, crept twisting like a snake among the weeds and rushes. Here were the sources of the Kankakee, one of the heads of the Illinois. They set their canoes on this thread of water, embarked their baggage and themselves, and pushed down the sluggish streamlet, looking at a little distance like men who sailed on land. Fed by an unceasing tribute of the spongy soil, it quickly widened to a river, and they floated on their way through a voiceless, lifeless solitude of dreary oak barrens or boundless marshes overgrown with reeds. At night they built their fire on ground made firm by frost and bivouacked among the rushes. A few days brought them to a more favored region. On the right hand and on the left, stretched the boundless prairie dotted with leafless groves and bordered by gray wintry forests scorched by the fires kindled in the dry grass by indian hunters and strewn with the carcasses and bleached skulls of innumerable buffalo the plains were scored with their pathways and the muddy edges of the river were full of their hoof-prints yet not one was to be seen at night the horizon glowed with distant fires, and by day the savage hunters could be described at times roaming on the verge of the prairie. The men, discontented and half-starved, would have deserted to them had they dared. La Salle's Mohegan could kill no game except two lean deer, with a few wild geese and swans. At length, in their straits, they made a happy discovery. It was a buffalo bull, fast mired in a slough. They killed him, lashed a cable about him, and then twelve men dragged out the shaggy monster whose ponderous carcass demanded their utmost efforts. The scene changed again as they descended. On either hand ran ranges of woody hills following the course of the river, and when they mounted to their tops, they saw beyond them a rolling sea of dull green prairie, a boundless pasture of the buffalo and the deer, in our own day strangely transformed, yellow in harvest time with ripened wheat, and dotted with the roofs of a hardy and valiant yeomanry. They passed the site of the future town of Ottawa, and saw on their right the high plateau of Buffalo Rock, long a favorite dwelling-place of Indians. 
A league below, the river glided among islands bordered with stately woods. Close on their left towered a lofty cliff crested with trees that overhung the rippling current, while before them spread the valley of the Illinois in broad, low meadows bordered on the right by the graceful hills at whose foot now lies the village of Utica. A population far more numerous then tenanted the valley. Along the right bank of the river were clustered the lodges of a great Indian town. Hennepin counted four hundred and sixty of them. In shape, they were somewhat like the arched top of a baggage wagon. They were built on a framework of poles, covered with mats of rushes closely interwoven, and each contained three or four fires, of which the greatest part served for two families. Here, then, was the town, but where were the inhabitants? All was silent as the desert. The lodges were empty, the fires dead, and the ashes cold. La Salle had expected this, for he knew that in the autumn the Illinois always left their towns for their winter hunting, and that the time of their return had not yet come. Yet he was not the less embarrassed for he would fain have bought a supply of food to relieve his famished followers. Some of them, searching the deserted town, presently found the caches, or covered pits, in which the Indians hid their stock of corn. This was precious beyond measure in their eyes, and to touch it would be a deep offense. La Salle shrank from provoking their anger, which might prove the ruin of his plans, but his necessity overcame his prudence, and he took thirty minutes of corn, hoping to appease the owners by presents. Thus provided, the party embarked again, and resumed their downward voyage. On New Year's Day, 1680, they landed and heard Mass. Then Hennepin wished a happy new year to La Salle first, and afterwards to all the men, making them a speech which, as he tells us, was most touching. He and his two brethren next embraced the whole company in turn, in a manner, writes the father, most tender and affectionate, exhorting them at the same time to patience, faith, and constancy. Four days after these solemnities, they reached the long expansion of the river then called Pimitui, and now known as Peoria Lake, and leisurely made their way downward to the site of the city of Peoria. Here, as evening drew near, they saw a faint spire of smoke curling above the gray forest, betokening that Indians were at hand. La Salle, as we have seen, had been warned that these tribes had been taught to regard him as their enemy, and when, in the morning, he resumed his course, he was prepared alike for peace or war. The shores now approached each other, and the Illinois was once more a river, bordered on either hand with overhanging woods. At nine o'clock, doubling a point, he saw about eighty Illinois wigwams on both sides of the river. He instantly ordered the eight canoes to be ranged in line, abreast, across the stream, Tonti on the right, and he himself on the left. 
the men laid down their paddles and seized their weapons while in this warlike guise the current bore them swiftly into the midst of the surprised and astounded savages the camps were in a panic warriors whooped and howled squaws and children screeched in chorus some snatched their bows and war clubs some ran in terror and in the midst of the hubbub la salle leaped ashore followed by his men none knew better how to deal with indians and he made no sign of friendship knowing that it might be construed as a token of fear his little knot of frenchmen stood gun in hand passive yet prepared for battle the indians on their part rallying a little from their fright made all haste to proffer peace two of their chiefs came forward holding out the calumet while another began a loud harangue to check the young warriors who were aiming their arrows from the farther bank la salle responding to these friendly overtures displayed another calumet while hennepin caught several scared children and soothed them with winning blandishments the uproar was quelled and the strangers were presently seated in the midst of the camp beset by a throng of wild and swarthy figures food was placed before them and as the illinois code of courtesy enjoined their entertainers conveyed the morsels with their own hands to the lips of these unenviable victims of their hospitality while others rubbed their feet with bear's grease la salle on his part made them a gift of tobacco and hatchets and when he had escaped from their caresses rose and harangued to them he told them that he had been forced to take corn from their granaries lest his men should die of hunger but he prayed them not to be offended promising full restitution or ample payment he had come he said to protect them against their enemies and teach them to pray to the true god as for the iroquois they were subjects of the great king and therefore brethren of the french yet nevertheless should they begin a war and invade the country of the illinois he would stand by them give them guns and fight in their defense if they would permit him to build a fort among them for the security of his men it was also he added his purpose to build a great wooden canoe in which to descend the mississippi to the sea and then return bringing them the goods of which they stood in need for if they would not consent to his plans and sell provisions to his men he would pass on to the osages who would then reap all the benefits of the intercourse with the french while they were left destitute at the mercy of the iroquois this threat had its effect for it touched their deep-rooted jealousy of the osages they were lavish of promises and feasts and dances consumed the day yet la salle soon learned that the intrigues of his enemies were still pursuing him that evening unknown to him a stranger appeared in the illinois camp he was a mascoutin chief named monso attended by five or six miamis and bringing a gift of knives hatchets and kettles to the illinois the chiefs assembled in a secret nocturnal session where smoking their pipes they listened with open ears to the harangue of the envoys monceau told them that he had come in behalf of certain frenchmen whom he named 
to warn his hearers against the designs of la salle whom he denounced as a partisan and spy of the iroquois affirming that he was now on his way to stir up the tribes beyond the mississippi to join in a war against the illinois who thus assailed from the east and from the west would be utterly destroyed there was no hope for them he added but in checking the farther progress of la salle or at least retarding it thus causing his men to desert him having thrown his firebrand monceau and his party left the camp in haste dreading to be confronted with the object of their aspersions in the morning la salle saw a change in the behavior of his hosts they looked at him askance cold sullen and suspicious there was one Amawa, a chief, whose favor he had won the day before by the politic gift of two hatchets and three knives, and who now came to him in secret to tell him what had taken place at the nocturnal council. La Salle at once saw in it a device of his enemies, and this belief was confirmed when, in the afternoon, Nicanope, brother of the head chief, sent to invite the Frenchman to a feast they repaired to his lodge but before dinner was served that is to say while the guests white and red were seated on mats each with his hunting knife in his hand and the wooden bowl before him which was to receive his share of the bear's or buffalo's meat or the corn boiled in fat with which he was to be regaled while such was the posture of the company their host arose and began a long speech he told the frenchman that he had invited them to his lodge less to refresh their bodies with good cheer than to cure their minds of the dangerous purpose which possessed them of descending the mississippi its shores he said were beset by savage tribes against whose numbers and ferocity their valor would avail nothing its waters were infested by serpents alligators and unnatural monsters while the river itself after raging among rocks and whirlpools plunged headlong at last into a fathomless gulf which would swallow them and their vessel forever la salle's men were for the most part raw hands knowing nothing of the wilderness and easily alarmed at its dangers but there were two among them old coureurs de bois who unfortunately knew too much for they understood the indian orator and explained his speech to the rest as la salle looked around on the circle of his followers he read an augury of fresh trouble in their disturbed and rueful visages he waited patiently however till the speaker had ended and then answered him through his interpreter with great composure first he thanked him for the friendly warning which his affection had impelled him to utter but he continued the greater the danger the greater the honor and even if the danger were real frenchmen would never flinch from it but were not the illinois jealous had they not been deluded by lies we were not asleep my brother when monceau came to tell you under cover of night that we were spies of the iroquois the presents he gave you that you might believe his falsehoods are at this moment buried in the earth under this lodge if he told the truth why did he skulk away in the dark why did he not show himself by day 
Do you not see that when we first came among you, and your camp was all in confusion, we could have killed you without needing help from the Iroquois? And now, while I am speaking, could we not put your old men to death, while your young warriors are all gone away to hunt? If we meant to make war on you, we would need no help from the Iroquois, who have so often felt the force of our arms. Look at what we have brought you. It is not weapons to destroy you, but merchandise and tools for your good. If you still harbor evil thoughts of us, be frank as we are, and speak them boldly. Go after this impostor Monso, and bring him back, that we may answer him face to face, for he never saw either us or the Iroquois, and what can he know of the plots that he pretends to reveal? The canopy had nothing to reply, and grunting assent in the depths of his throat, made a sign that the feast should proceed. The French were lodged in huts near the Indian camp, and fearing treachery, La Salle placed a guard at night. On the morning after the feast, he came out into the frosty air and looked about him for the sentinels. Not one of them was to be seen. Vexed and alarmed, he entered hut after hut and roused his drowsy followers. Six of the number, including two of the best carpenters, were nowhere to be found. Discontented and mutinous from the first, and now terrified by the fictions of Nicanope, they had deserted, preferring the hardships of the midwinter forest to the mysterious terrors of the Mississippi. La Salle mustered the rest before him, and inveighed sternly against the cowardice and baseness of those who had thus abandoned him, regardless of his many favors. If any here, he added, are afraid, let them but wait till the spring, and they shall have free leave to return to Canada, safely and without dishonor. This desertion cut him to the heart. It showed him that he was leaning on a broken reed, and he felt that, on an enterprise full of doubt and peril, there were scarcely four men in his party whom he could trust. Nor was desertion the worst he had to fear, for here, as at Fort Frontenac, an attempt was made to kill him. Tonti tells us that poison was placed in the pot in which their food was cooked, and that La Salle was saved by an antidote which some of his friends had given him before he left France. This, it will be remembered, was an epoch of poisoners. It was in the following month that the notorious Lavoisin was burned alive at Paris for the practices to which many of the highest nobility were charged with being privy, not excepting some in whose veins ran the blood of the gorgeous spendthrift who ruled the destinies of France. In these early French enterprises in the West, it was to the last degree difficult to hold men to their duty. Once fairly in the wilderness, completely freed from the sharp restraints of authority in which they had passed their lives, a spirit of lawlessness broke out among them with a violence proportioned to the pressure which had hitherto controlled it. Discipline had no resources and no guarantee, while those outlaws of the forest, the coureurs de bois, were always before their eyes, a standing example of unbridled license. La Salle, eminently skillful in his dealings with Indians, was rarely so happy with his own countrymen, and yet 
the desertions from which he was continually suffering were due far more to the inevitable difficulty of his position than to any want of conduct on his part. End of chapter 12